Well, we are moving towards Christmas, and we're continuing in our Christmas series, or in our Advent series, titled Love Came Down. Now, last week, we asked the question, why did Jesus become a man? Okay, why, did he, why did he become a man? Or theologically, the, the, the question is, why the incarnation of Christ? Why was the incarnation necessary? And I quoted a wonderful author, theologian named C.S. Lewis, and he offered an answer to us. And he said, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. It's kind of a nice little like A-B-B-A type of form. Let me say that one more time. The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Last week, we were also reminded that the highest blessing, the highest blessing of Christ in the gospel is the doctrine of adoption to allow you and I to become sons and daughters of God. That is the highest privilege that we can experience as Christians, even greater than simply being forgiven, even greater than experiencing the new life of the Spirit. Why? Why is adoption the highest privilege that comes from Christ in the gospel? And the reason is this. God doesn't want to just forgive us and send us on our way. He isn't here to just kind of like wash you clean and then be like, now go live your life. What God wants for us is to be reconciled to him. What he wants for us is to have an intimate, filial relationship with him. He wants us to know what it means to call out to him, Abba, Father. He wants us to know what it means for him to look at us with love and affection and acceptance, say, you are my son, you are my daughter, that kind of intimacy, intimacy is what God the Father wants for us. And that's the highest, deepest, richest blessing that Jesus affords for us in the gospel. Now, today's message, it's a continuation of that, that, that question, a continuation of that message. Why the incarnation? Why did Jesus have to come? God taking on flesh, and what, what does it mean for you and I to be called sons and daughters of God? I want to help us practically kind of live into that even more. If you have your Bibles, please turn to our passage for today. It is 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 to 10. Um, the words are also going to go up on the screen, and I'll be reading from the ESV. May God bless the reading of his holy and sufficient word. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous." Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Amen, the word of the Lord. Now, this is a rich passage. There's a lot of great truth here, but today for our message, I really wanna just kind of like hone in and focus on verse eight. And in verse eight, the apostle John, he writes and reminds us, the reason the son of God appeared 
was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, I know it's an odd thing. I mean, we are moving towards Christmas. This is our Advent series. And here we are in week two of our series, and we're talking about the devil. That might be a little like unsettling, unnerving, or awkward. But as I have been studying the doctrine of the incarnation, what it means for Jesus to be Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus taking on flesh, I've come to realize how important it is for us to understand who the devil is, to realize what he does, right? What is he trying to do in our lives, in the world, so that we can better appreciate the work of Jesus, so that we can more deeply experience the power of Jesus in our lives. And so uh, we're going to talk about the devil. I'm going to say Satan maybe like a hundred times throughout the sermon. I know it's weird. It's like, oh, I feel like we shouldn't say his name in church. It's okay. Jesus is greater. Now, if you've watched the movie, The Usual Suspects, it's a classic. I think everyone my age and older has seen it. And uh, if y'all are younger, um, look for it. it it's, it's a classic. Uh, there's a great quote by the main character. His name's Kaiser Sozi. And at the end of the movie, he says, the greatest trick the devil, devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Let me say that one more time. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Man, deep quote, right? Well, I did some digging, and I've realized that the writer of The Usual Suspects, he didn't come up with that. He ripped that off of a pastor. Yeah, or Christians, right, in Hollywood. Um, it was a Quaker pastor named John Wilkinson, and he said this in... 1836, the language was a little different, a little more archaic. And John Wilkinson said, one of the artifices of Satan is to induce men to believe that he does not exist. In a very similar vein, C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis wrote in his screw tape letters, um, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an unhealthy or an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Which are you? Which do you tend towards? Can I ask you a very like direct question? Do you believe in Satan? Right? I'm not asking if you're a Satanist, right, or if you follow him. I'm just saying, do you believe that the devil is real? Do you believe that demons are real? That when the scripture talks about Satan, he is this roaring lion looking for people to devour and ensnare. Do you believe that that's a reality going on in our lives and in our world? Or are you kind of like, eh, not so much. I don't really think about the devil. If you're like me, you know, you tend towards that. I don't always think of angels and demons and Satan, right? I, I do believe in God. I do believe in Jesus Christ as the son of God. I thank God for the gospel. I believe Jesus died on the cross. Three days later, rose again. I acknowledge my sin. I hope you, you guys do as well. And we take responsibility for our sin. But here's the difference. We rarely and we fail to associate our sins as a result of Satan's work. Okay? We think of our sins as our fault, our responsibility, our decisions, right? our failures. And you don't think of the impact or the role that the devil has in leading us astray into sin. And I realized for me, that's not only like naturalistic, right? It's also egoistic, right? Uh, it's, it's egotistical to think that it's all about me. 
It's all about my decisions, my choices, my responsibilities, my failures or my obedience, whatever it might be. That sin is simply a result of my bad decisions. You see, if you read through the scriptures, we are reminded that sin begins with temptation from the devil. That sin begins when we believe the lies that he tells us, okay? Now, it's always our responsibility. The guilt is always ours, but if you read through the scriptures, you realize that there is a tempter, there is a liar, and we are influenced by Satan. If you have experienced temptation, okay, if you have heard lies about God, if you've, if you've heard lies about the world or lies about yourself and you've contemplated them and you've wrestled with them, okay, you know what that means? That you have encountered the devil, that you have heard the devil's voice in your life, whether it's, I'm kind of questioning if God loves me. I'm questioning if God is really in control when I see all of the, the, the pain and all of the struggle and all of the violence and brokenness in the world. I don't know if God's actually with us, right? I don't know if I should live for Jesus anymore. I don't know if he's worth it. I don't know if I should follow him or if I should sacrifice for him. All of those questions, all of those struggles where we are wondering, man, is the Bible true? Is God a liar? That's all the voice of Satan in our lives. We are encountering him. Once again, this doesn't absolve us of our responsibility for sin, but it reminds us of the sober reality. You and I, we have an enemy. We have an enemy who wants to deceive us. We have an enemy who's constantly lying to us. And you have an enemy who wants to keep you as far away from God as possible. Okay? He doesn't want you to be a child of God. He wants you to be a bastard a spiritual bastard with no father in heaven who knows you and loves you. One commentator put it this way. If my sin is personal enemy number one, then Satan is public enemy number one, okay? The flesh, our flesh is our internal foe, but the devil is our external foe. Can you guys follow that? So yes, we struggle with our longings. We struggle with our desires, Right? We struggle in the flesh. That is biblical. But there's also someone who's arousing in us our desires, our struggles, right? our sinfulness. And that is our external foe. Brothers and sisters, the good news of Jesus is this. That through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus is victorious over both. Both our flesh, our weakness, our own brokenness, and victorious over Satan and all of his demons. Satan and all of his deceptions, Satan and all of his lies, Jesus is victorious. And in his grace, he shares his victory with you and me. He shares his power with us. You see, Jesus didn't come to just teach. He didn't come to just amass a crowd. Jesus didn't come to just even like live his own sinless life. He didn't come just to be an example for you and I to follow. Jesus came to do something, okay? He came to do something. He was on a mission to accomplish something. And as our passage tells us, he came to take our sins away and destroy the works of the devil, right? It's so active. It's so missional. It's so powerful. Jesus came to do something and to, to free us from our sins, to, to atone for our guilt and destroy the works of the devil. The question that I want to answer throughout our sermon is, how does he do this? How does he actually do this? 
right? How does he accomplish this in our lives and for the world? The title of today's message is The Victory of Christ, The Victory of Christ, and I'm going to structure the, question, uh, the sermon around three questions. The first is this, what are the works of the devil? We're going to just, we're going to do some like, I guess the theological term would be Satanology, so if there's ever like a biblical study of a topic, you just add ology. So theology is God, the study of God. Angelology, study of angels. We're going to do some Satanology, which is weird. But we're going to study who Satan is and what does he do? What are his works? The second thing that we're going to look at is how does de- Jesus destroy the works of the devil? And finally, we're going to ask, how do we live in the victory of Christ? So those are our three questions, and hopefully we'll answer them. In our passage, the Apostle John, he tells us that sin is lawlessness. What a clean definition of sin. It is lawlessness. What does this mean? It means that we have rejected God's commands. His commands that are holy, his commands that are good, we have said no. It means that we have gone our own way, that we want to be our own kings, we want to be our own rulers and authority, and we have rejected the law and command of God. Now, here's the thing. As we reject the law of God, we're also rejecting God as the lawgiver, okay? You can't reject the laws and commands of God without rejecting the authority of God, God as a good lawgiver. Every parent has felt this with their children, okay? Every parent who's saying, hey, go to sleep, Brush your teeth. Do your homework. Stop fighting with your sibling. Parents are giving commands all the time, and then they're experiencing rebellion. Right? Kids don't listen. Right? And then you start arguing with them. And what starts off as an argument about a command turns into an argument of authority. Right? Have you ever been in an argument like that? You start off talking about a thing, and at the end you start feeling like, this is just you versus me. Are you going to listen to me? Right? Or am I going to give in to you, right? I, I, anyways, I'm not going to give that illustration, but I've experienced that with a kid. I got into one of our pastor's kids. I had a toy, and I was in a tug-of-war match, and I was going to see whether or not he was going to surrender and submit to my authority, and I lost. <laughs> I lost. I was like, oh, you're too willful, and I don't want to shame myself fighting with a kid, um, but I felt it. It started off with, over a toy, and it ended up being him versus me, and he won. Anyways, um, that's lawlessness. We reject the laws of God. We actually reject the lawgiver. John also wants to warn us that if we make a practice of sinning, then we're not living as children of God. We're actually living as children of the devil because he has been sinning from the beginning. This is another passage where we're like, man, is this real? Are we going to take God at his word? Do we really believe that if we're living in sin, we are actually children of the devil? That seems a little extreme. That seems a little harsh. But this is the scriptures. And this is what we have to wrestle with. Will we submit and agree that if we abide in sinfulness, we're imitating the devil, right? And we're children of the devil. And if we abide in holiness and godliness, we are reflecting childhood of God. The devil, let's talk about him. He has various names in the Bible. He's called Satan, Lucifer. Right? Lucifer is like the most like, sinister one, right? Lucifer. There's Beelzebub. He is called the serpent in the Garden of Eden. If you read through Revelation, he's the dragon. Right? He's also referred to as the god of this world. And John tells us that Satan has been sinning from the beginning. 
I want to correct what I think a lot of people have a wrong perception about God and Satan. We always think like in, from eternity past, it was God and Satan, and they're always like kind of against each other, right? That is not true. That's not correct. Satan did not exist in eternity past. Only God the Father, only God the Son, only God the Spirit existed in eternity past. That's why only God is Alpha and Omega. So in the beginning, Genesis tells us God created what? The heavens and the earth. God created space in the heavens, the spiritual realm, and he created this physical realm. And through the days of creation, God filled the heavens and he filled the earth. And so Genesis tells us that just as man was created on the sixth day, sometime, I don't know when, God created Satan. God created all of the angels and all of the hosts of heaven. Satan was one of God's angelic creations. Satan was the first angel to rebel from God. Satan fell from heaven. Jesus tells us in Luke 10 that he himself, as the second person of the Trinity, there present, lording over creation, he saw Satan fall from the sky like a lightning bolt from heaven. He saw the fall of Lucifer. Many theologians, they believe, and and this is a really good question. It's like, when did Satan fall? When did Satan fall? And the best answer I found, and I actually believe this, is... uh, Many theologians believe that Satan fell after the sixth day. After the sixth day, when he saw how God had created man in his own image. You see, the angels weren't created in the image of God. The angels angels weren't created to have dominion over the earth. Adam was. Eve was. Adam and Eve were created in God's image. Satan saw that. He saw the relationship, the intimacy, the joy, the affection that the father had for the firstborn of creation. He saw that and he envied it. And then he saw that God gave Adam and Eve authority to name the animals, to have dominion over the earth. And Satan said, what? You're giving the world to Adam and not to us? So Satan envied. He coveted. He was jealous. And he rebelled from God. He rebelled from his authority, and he was condemned. Satan fell like a lightning bolt from the heavens. And as a fallen creature, Satan took on a new mission. Satan, who was created to worship God and obey God and be a messenger for God, Satan had a new mission, and his new mission was what? It was this, to separate men and women from God, to to, to, to wage war, against Adam and Eve and all of their progeny to wage war against God's children, to separate them out of his hatred for and rebellion from God. Any parent knows the gravity of that kind of war. Any father would say, yeah, if you wanna, if, if you wanna hurt me, the worst thing you can do is not physically come after me, it's go after my children, go after my family, That's my nightmare. That would be hell for me. And that's what Satan is trying to do, to hurt God, to wage war against him by going after the children of God. So how does he do this? What does Satan do to separate us from God? If you've read the story of Job, Satan wants to, he says, you know, Job only loves you and worships you and obeys you because he's so rich and his life is so good, right? God says, no, go ahead and test him. Okay? but you cannot touch him. Here's the reality. 
for us. Satan cannot touch you. He cannot harm you. He can't physically and actually like destroy you. Okay? He doesn't have that kind of authority. God the Father will not let him do that. But you know what Satan does? He deceives. He lies. He tempts. That's his work. Do you remember the serpent's conversation with Eve in the Garden of Eden? Right? Eve's in the garden. Satan, the serpent, approaches her. And in Genesis 3.1, he asks this question. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? If you remember Eve's response, she says, yes. He said, we cannot eat of the tree of the knowledge of good, good and evil. We can't eat it, and neither can we touch it. And that's a bad answer because she added to the command. Satan hears that, and he says a second thing to Eve. Verse 4, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you see what Satan has done? Satan can't directly inject sin into Eve's heart. He doesn't have that kind of power, right? What he does is he leads Eve to question God's character. He leads Eve, tempts Eve to question his goodness and generosity. You see, he made God to to come off like he's holding out. Man, there's, there's this tree of knowledge and good and evil. There's this truth, there's this wisdom that God is keeping from you. So suddenly Eve no longer sees God as generous and good. She sees Eve as stingy, selfish, not giving the fullness of what he could to her. He tempts Eve to question God's commands as wise and beneficial. And finally, to question the consequences of disobedience as real. God says, eat of this tree and you will surely die. Satan says, you will not die. Who is right and who is wrong? Brothers and sisters, Satan does the same with us every day. He wants us to question God's goodness. He wants us to question God's love for us. He wants us to question the wisdom of God. How many times have you guys just been going through life, whether it's as a student, as a single struggling with relationships or academics or career or your, your family and you're struggling financially and you're just like, God, are you, are you sovereign? Are you leading us? I feel like you're leading us to a bad place, right? I feel like you don't have the best out for us. That's Satan causing and tempting us to question God's goodness and his wisdom in our lives. Satan lies to us. He tells you, you know, you'll be happier if you had more money. So chase that idol of money with all that you have. And we're like, oh, that, that's, that's right. If I just had more money, and we think that money is going to solve all of our problems. Biggie's right. More money, more problems, right? But, but we buy into that lie. He lies to us, telling us that we will have a more satisfying life. That you and I will, will have a a more enjoyable life if we indulge ourselves in that affair, in sex, in pornography. We will be more satisfied with life. We will be happier, more content. Our lives will be more flourishing if we bought certain things, drove certain cars, right? indulged ourselves on Amazon or in the mall or whatever it might be. 
we think, man, my life, it's, it's such a grind. It's so unfulfilling. I need Paris. I need Hawaii. I need whatever. And we think that like these experiences, we think that these vacations, we think that these meals, we think that these trips will satisfy our souls, brothers and sisters. There's nothing wrong with shopping, right? Got these jeans, Black Friday, 40% off, right? There's nothing wrong with taking a break, going on vacation, and enjoying the good gifts of life. But what Satan says is, you need this. This will satisfy you. And we buy into that lie over and over again. Here's the more dangerous thing. I asked, God says, you will surely die. Satan says, no, you won't. You know what's scary? We don't fear God. Over and over again, the Bible warns us of the wages of sin. The wages of sin are death. If you pattern your life in sinfulness, you are gonna be living as a child of Satan, a child of the devil. And you know what we do? We're like, "Ah, I don't know if really that's gonna happen. We doubt it, don't we? We don't fear God. We're more afraid of our spouses. We're more afraid of our, our parents catching us. We're more afraid of our bosses than we are of God. Think about that, right? Our entire lives are quorum Deo, before the face of God, and yet we sin over and over again without any second thought about what God would say to us, what this means, what my rebellion means before my relationship with God. We're more like, I hope my wife doesn't walk in right now. I hope my boss doesn't find out how I'm fudging numbers. I hope my teacher doesn't find out that I just cheated on my project. We fear men more than we fear God. We don't fear and respect the consequences of sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British preacher, he said in a sermon, he, Satan, has persuaded men and women to believe and accept these various lies. And all our unhappiness in this world is a result of our folly in believing the lies of Satan. Is that not true of us? Have we not known in our hearts that when things go wrong, our first hatred is a feeling of hatred against God? Friends, have you experienced this? When things have gone wrong in your life, when you haven't gotten what you worked for or wanted or felt like you deserved, when you've experienced great failure or loss or pain, have you felt angry at God ever? Have you ever been bitter at God? Have you ever had disdain or have you ever despised him, right? And if we are all honest with one another, we have. We've experienced dissatisfaction with God. We've been angry at him. We've been bitter at him. And I want to tell you, this is one of the main reasons why people leave the church, okay? A lot of people have left the church because they believe that God let them down. They believe that God didn't answer their prayers whether it was unrealized hopes, professional failures, financial hardship. They've said, God, where are you? Why aren't you providing? Why don't you care? How are you sovereign? You're letting all of these terrible things happen to me and to my family and my loved ones. Either you are real and powerless, or you're not real, or you're real and you're cruel. But either way, we're done. And so people leave the church. 
I want to say this with as much compassion as possible. One of the greatest causes of people being angry and bitter with God and believing the lie that he's no longer good and that he doesn't love us is when we experience loss of our loved ones. Whether it's you losing a parent, you seeing your sibling or your child suffer, married couples going through various miscarriages, and just that loss, that pain, it turns into bitterness, it turns into anger, it turns into hatred, and we turn away from God. But brothers and sisters, if you turn away from God, there's only one person you'll turn to, and you're turning towards the devil. You're turning towards Satan. You've bought into the lies of Satan. He wants you to believe that God is not good, that God doesn't care. That's actually the greatest lie he could tell you. Not that he doesn't exist, but it's that God doesn't love you, that God isn't caring for you, that God isn't with you. When we fall into this dark place, we become alienated from God. We become subject to the power of Satan. You see, brothers and sisters, there's only two kingdoms. It's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And when we follow, when we turn away from God and follow after Satan, we become slaves in his kingdom, subject to his power, subject to his authority. Jesus, in the Gospels, he talks about Satan all the time. And he describes Satan in Luke chapter 11 as the strong man. As the strong man. If you've ever read this passage, it's kind of confusing. Let me break it down for you. This is what Jesus says. He says, when a strong man is fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. You know who the strong man is? It's not Jesus. Satan is the strong man. Satan's kingdom, Satan's palace is this world. That's, that's why he is called the God of this world. And he has his power. He has his authority. And as long as he goes unchallenged, his goods are safe. You know what his goods are? Mankind. Humanity in darkness. Humanity in sin. His goods are safe. He owns this world. But Jesus, he's the one who comes and he's stronger. One who comes who's stronger than him and he attacks him and he overcomes him and he takes away his armor saying he takes away his power. He takes away his authority in which he trusted and divides his spoil. That means Jesus takes us back. He redeems, he reclaims that which is his, his sons and his daughters. That's what Jesus does for us. What an awesome story. What an awesome parable that Jesus tells us. This is why Jesus came, to destroy the works of the devil. I love that. If you see Jesus as this kind of like wuss, as this like, oh, I love you guys so much and I'm gonna die on the cross for you. Can you get that Jesus out of your head? If you only see Jesus as like baby Jesus, meek and mild, guys, baby Jesus grows up. He becomes a man and he fights Satan for you. He destroys the work of Satan for you. How does he do this? How does he do this? To quote Lloyd-Jones one more time, 
His incarnation undoes the lie of Satan. For if the incarnation tells us one thing more than anything else, it is that God is love and that God has loved us with an everlasting love. The babe, the baby in Bethlehem is a denial of the lie of Satan. He says, I am here because God loves you. Remember again, what is Satan's main weapon? He's not gonna like inject you with pain and and like harm you physically. His main weapon is his words. He is a liar. He is an accuser. He lies to us saying, God doesn't really love you. He lies to us saying that like, you know what? God is angry at you. He's disappointed with you. How many more times must he forgive you? How much more grace must he show you for you to finally start getting your act together? That's not the word of God. That's the word of Satan. And suddenly those accusations come over us. He throws our sins in our faces. And he tells us, you have done too much. This time, this betrayal, this sin, you went too far. You are beyond redemption. Beyond redemption from the love and mercy of God. And we hear that and we're crushed. We hear that and we're like drowning in our own guilt. You know what's the crazy thing for so many of us? Satan doesn't have to convince you to stop believing in God. He doesn't have to get you to doubt God. He only needs to get you to doubt yourself. He only needs to get you to despise yourself, to drown in your own self-loathing. And when we do that, we don't go to God, we run from him. Just like Adam and Eve, after the fall, what did they do? They hid from him in shame. They covered themselves. And even though God was calling out to them, pursuing him, they were trying to hide from God. And that's what happens to us when the accusations of Satan overwhelm us. Adam and Eve never disbelieved the existence of God. They just thought they had had gone too far. Their shame was too much. And I think we do the same. We run and hide from God. But it's precisely when we are at our weakness, weakest. It's precisely when we, when we are the most aware of our guilt and our shame, that's when we must look to Christ. God in the incarnation has proven his love for you. He has not abandoned you. He has not counted your sins against you, but he sent his beloved son to you, for you. Brothers and sisters, I think this kind of love, it's so familiar to us. It's actually very natural for us to understand and comprehend. I mean, how do you respond when the people that you love are in need? How do you respond? How would you respond when the people that you love and care about cry out to you in help, who are in pain and dire circumstances? You don't ignore them. You go to them. You show them that you care. You visit them in the hospital, even if you have to drive from Riverside to Santa Monica out of love and devotion, whether it's friendship or family, you will go. You do that. You make time for them. You sacrifice for them. When when you see someone that you love who is hurting and in need, we do those things. We draw near. We don't stand offish. We don't stay at a distance. That's what God does for us. That's what God has done for us in the cross. I'm going to share a kind of ridiculous illustration. Um, if y'all don't know, I love my dog. All right? I love my dog. My dog, uh, her name is Piper. 
We adopted her about five years ago. Yes, it's, she's named after John Piper. And uh, we got her as a puppy, right? Four months old, four months old, as a puppy from the pound. The moment I saw her, I was like, you're the one, right? You're the one. And my wife, Alice, loved her. And even from the beginning, she was rebellious. Like, we were walking out of the, the shelter, having just adopted her, and like five steps out the door, she like pees on Alice, right? But we have so much love. We're like, it's okay. You know, like, we're already ready for uh, babies. Anyways, um, so... In the beginning, we have this puppy, and we need to house train her, right? We don't want her, like, going to the bathroom all over our rugs and all over our house, so we crate train this dog. We crate train the dog, and so that means I'm sleeping, me and my wife, we're sleeping in our bed, and the dog's in the living room in a crate, and she hates it, right? She has major FOMO, and so she's barking and barking and barking, and we're like, you know, just be strong. Crate training, right? This is, gonna, this is good, right? And um, one night, I broke, though. I broke. Because she went from barking to crying. She broke the father's heart. And so (laughs) this is what happened. I got out of my comfortable bed in the middle of the night. It was like 2 a.m. She's like, right? And I go over to her crate, and I lie down on the ground, hardwood floor, and I sleep next to her, right? So ridiculous, right? I'm a grown man. I condescended. This is for a dog, right? And this is actually why... um, our baby is coming in, in like less than a month or so, or maybe a month. Now I'm shook. Um, uh, I know that when we do like sleep training, I'm the weak one. Yeah, because I couldn't even crate train my own dog. Um, now, you may think that that's ridiculous, right? For me to get out of my bed and sleep next to my crying dog. It's actually kind of humiliating for me to share this with you. But I want to say this. It's vastly more incomprehensible vastly more humiliating for the everlasting God, the creator of the universe, to condescend down to us, to draw near to us. For Jesus, the Son of God, the Word of God, to take on flesh and become a man, to live and walk among us and die on the cross for our sins. This is why theologians call the life and death of Jesus the humiliation of Christ, okay? If you, if you study any, like, uh, uh, systematic theology on Jesus, there's two general categories for the life of Jesus, and they're called the humiliation of Christ and the glorification of Christ. And the humiliation of Christ begins with the incarnation of Christ, Jesus in the womb, baby Jesus in the manger in Bethlehem. And every day he lived on this earth, In this sin-stained earth, all of the rejection, the hunger, the judgment, the scorn, the betrayal, all of that was considered under the humiliation of Christ. And his humiliation climaxes at the cross where he is betrayed and crucified by the very ones he came to save. He dies and he's buried. Three days later, he rises again, and that is the glorification of Christ. But imagine... What father would send their son knowing he's going to be humiliated? What son, what man would willingly come and live among us on this earth knowing that his whole life would be humiliation? And yet he did. Why? Because he loves you. He came to ransom you and redeem you. To paraphrase John Calvin, why the incarnation? He says, the reason for the incarnation 
was that God alone, he couldn't die. God can't die. He is infinite and immortal, so he can't die for our sins. But here's the other problem. Man alone couldn't overcome our sins. Even on our best days, we, can, we could not overcome the disease, the plague of sin. So God became man so that through his death, he could atone for our sins and win victory for us. This is how Jesus destroys the work of Satan. He destroys the lies of Satan by his incarnation. He destroys Satan's ability to accuse us as wretched, sinful, undeserving people. How? Because Jesus takes our guilt. He takes our shame. He takes all of our punishment upon himself on the cross so that we are now counted righteous. But he also destroys the power of death by his resurrection. The Apostle Paul, he calls death the last enemy in 1 Corinthians 15. The author of Hebrews, he states that Satan holds the power of death. What a, what a mysterious phrase that Satan holds the power of death. But because Jesus has risen from the grave, death is a defeated foe. Not even death itself can separate us from the love of God. Think about that. For, for all of us, death feels so final, does it not? Whether you're, you've seen a family member or a friend pass away and you, you see them in the tomb, you see them in their grave, and it just feels like the end. Well, the resurrection tells us that death is not the end. That because Jesus rose from the grave, death has lost its sting. So we don't have to fear death as this final, ultimate judgment. Why? Because Jesus has defeated the sting of death. There is the death of death and the death of Christ. This is the victory, and he shares this with us. Let me close with a simple question. It's our application. How do we live in the victory of Christ? Jesus is victorious over our sin. He's victorious over Satan. He's victorious over death. How do we live in this victory? Do we just sing about it, right? Do we close our eyes and receive it? Well, John makes it clear for us. He tells us to become who we are, to live according to our identity. Christ has made you a child of God, holy by grace, holy by his work, his life, death, and resurrection. And his prize, his reward is you and I as children of God. So here's the exhortation. Live as a true son. Live as a true daughter. Stop living as a daughter or child of Satan. Stop imitating Satan. Start imitating Christ. This is what John says in the last two verses of our passage. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The first question I want to answer from this passage is, what does John mean by God's seed? And the answer is this, because the seed unlocks the key. The whole reason why you and I can, can live in righteousness is because God's seed lives in us. The answer is, God's seed is his spirit. It is his Holy Spirit residing in us. 
It is his Holy Spirit giving us new life. It is his Holy Spirit who has regenerated our hearts, our hearts that were callous and stone and filled with sin and desire to rebel and run away from God. His Holy Spirit has changed that heart into a heart of flesh, a heart that is alive and able to receive God's love and love him back. That is all the product of a Holy Spirit. And this is what John says. If God's seed really does abide in you, if the Spirit really is in you, then it must bear fruit. It must bear fruit. And this is a tough one because we're like, dude, our, our lives, my life feels so powerless. I'm not bearing much fruit, right? Um, I probably shared in the past, uh, I really got my wife mad, but our house, we can keep dogs alive. We're good, right? Uh, but we're terrible at plants, right? Plants come and die. And I'm like, if you want to kill your plant, drop them off at the Lee's house, right? And uh, this past year, uh, we were like, okay, let's not just try to grow plants. Let's grow like herbs for cooking. And so I got this little like foodie garden and we got seeds, right? And so I planted it, watered it, put it in the sun. And I'm like, I can't wait to have my own jalapeno peppers and cilantro and stuff like that. Every day I look at it, nothing happens. I water it some more, nothing happens. Right? A couple weeks in, like a little sprout comes. And I was like, oh, excited. A week later, it dies. <laughs> I was like, nothing, Right? And I was like, man, like, but here's the thing. That seed did not bear fruit, right? Maybe it was me. Maybe the seed was weak, right? That happens to all of us over and over again. We invest in things. We expect things, right? And we don't see the results. But there's something different about the seed of God. It is God himself, the Holy Spirit. God who is omnipotent. God who is indomitable. And so if God, the Holy Spirit, truly lives in us. It is not a question of will there be, it's when will God bear fruit in our lives, okay? It's not an if, it's a when. It's not can, it's must. This is the reality for us. If we are truly are sons and daughters of God, then it will be evident by the fruit that we bear. And this fruit is obedience to God's commands. This fruit is love for God and love for one another. This fruit is not something you try to grow. It's not something you try to do to become a son. You obey, you love, you serve, you worship because you are a son, because you are a daughter. Our obedience, our fruit flows from our identity. And I just want to share that because I think too many of us don't follow God. We don't obey God. We don't serve God. We don't love God and our neighbors as we should. Because, here's the reason, not because you don't know the command. It's because you don't feel it. You don't feel it. You're like, I want to eventually, someday. I'm just waiting for the right moment. Okay. And I will tell you that if you keep waiting for the right moment, the odds are you'll never experience it. You should not obey. You should not love out of feeling. You should obey out of your identity. Why should you serve? Why should you worship? Why should you love? Because you have first been loved so perfectly and scandalously by your Father in heaven, by your Savior who loves you. This is so real for me as a married man, okay? I loved my wife. 
I loved Alice, so I proposed. We became husband and wife. You know what that means? I'm no longer a bachelor, okay? So out of love, my identity changed, right? No longer a bachelor, I'm now a husband. But out of that identity, you know what? My whole life changed. I had to start washing dishes. As a single man, do you know what I did? I never washed, I hated washing dishes. I went to Costco, bought the red party cups, right? I bought the huge stack of plates. I ate off them, boom, threw it away, done, right? I think all the college guys are like, yeah, we did that. I get married, suddenly, I have to wash dishes, right? I have to obey, right? I have to demonstrate, I can't just say it, I have to do it. I have to start cleaning the floor, take out the trash, I have to share my bank account, right? It's now ours, right? All of these things change, but all of that is flowing from my relationship with my wife, from my identity as a husband. And when I do those things, you know what? There's peace. There's intimacy, there's flourishing. When I refuse, when there's lawlessness in my household, my wife is not okay with me. You want to experience intimacy with God? Try obeying him. Seriously, try obeying him. He has called you a son and a daughter. And you're like, I know I'm a Christian, but I just feel so distant from him. Try obeying him. Try allowing the Holy Spirit to lead you versus your feelings, your authority your decisions to dictate the terms. Allow God to lead you and have authority over your life. That's my prayer for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are such a patient and gracious God. We thank you that though we can live as such rebels, striving for our own authority, chasing after what we think is best for our own lives. God, I thank you that you don't cast us away, but you press in, Lord. You pursue us. You love us. You speak and sing your grace over us. So, Lord, we thank you for your relentless love. And, Father, I want to pray right now for any of my friends here today who might be in a in a dark place, struggling in faith. God, I pray that you would sustain them. They might be doubting whether you're good. They might be doubting whether you love them and you care. God, would you show them you care through your son, Jesus? Would you show them that you're with them by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit? pray for them right now.